Because something amazing about Tanya is that wherever we are, it's always relevant. It's not like, oh, I'm coming. It's not like, oh, I'm coming to this late. I'm 35 chapters late. Forget about it. Whichever chapter we're on is very relevant. And even if we're going to have to visit ideas that we visited or learned before, that's fine. So we'll flesh it out. But every chapter is the chapter for now. So the chapter for now is chapter 36. If you remember our last chapter, chapter 35, we finished with the idea of why actual practical deed is of primary importance, which is kind of shocking in a way. You think my pure love, my tremendous awe should be so much more valuable than practical deed. What's a practical deed? It's a dry act. But on the other hand, when somebody is on fire with love for Hashem, passionate for him, or just completely overawed with fear and awe of him, that should supersede any practical physical deed. And Altarba said no, because no matter how lofty the person who's experiencing that awe, no matter how lo- lofty that soul that experiences that passion, there's a separate identity here. There is Hashem and someone who experiences these lofty feelings. The truth of the matter is that there's really nothing else besides Hashem. And that's something we're going to talk about at length in this chapter. And what is a mitzvah? What's that dry act, that physical act? Is nothing other than an expression of his will. So you think like, oh, it's just an act, a physical act. You take a lulav and esrog and you shake it. What is that? Well, do you know what that is? That's an expression of Hashem's pure will in this physical world. And what that accomplishes is it draws down the manifestation of the Shekhinah, the manifestation, divine manifestation, not just upon the divine soul, but even upon the animal soul and upon the body. So when a person does a physical act that Hashem said, I want you to do, that's what we call a mitzvah. Hashem said, do this, and a person does a physical act, what they are accomplishing at that point is they are drawing down divine revelation, not just upon their divine soul, but even upon their body and their animal soul. Amazing. But why is that amazing? Why Why should we consider that amazing? Why wouldn't it be enough to draw down the Shekhinah only upon our divine soul? We're saying, great, amazing, you do this physical act and it draws down the Shekhinah even upon the body, even upon the animal soul. And that is amazing. Why? What's so amazing about that? This is something that Altareb is going to address in this chapter. So in this chapter, we're going to talk about why it's so important to draw down the Shekhinah, not just upon the divine soul, but even upon our body and our animal soul. And another thing we're going to visit is the concept of Mashiach. The concept of Mashiach is huge. We have to understand why are we waiting for him? The Rambam, Maimonides, classified belief in Mashiach and awaiting for his arrival as one of the 13 principles of our faith. To classify something as a principle of faith means it's of such primary importance that everything we do in terms of serving Hashem rests upon this. So when you say want to say a mitzvah is important, you could say it's important. But if you're calling it a principle of faith, 
you're saying that everything you do in Judaism is affected by this. Let's look at other principles of faith. Believing that Hashem is the sole creator. Believing that he is one God. Believing that the Torah is divine. We can understand why these are principles of faith. These are principles of faith because you can't properly serve Hashem if you don't believe in him. If you don't believe he's the sole creator. You can't properly serve him if you don't believe that the Torah is divine. But why are you going to say that you can't properly serve Hashem if you don't believe in the coming of Mashiach and if you don't await for his arrival? That's a big thing to say. In fact, maybe it should be better if someone doesn't await for his arrival because didn't Antigonus Ishaichai, this is one of our sages in the Masorah, he said, don't be like servants who serve their master in order to receive a reward. So maybe if we're waiting for Mashiach so much, we're anticipating him so much, maybe we're just doing this because we're waiting for a reward. And this is what we're understanding here in this chapter. Mashiach is not just a reward. Like, you know, you do a job and then you get a paycheck and the paycheck is not produced by your job. The paycheck is just an exchange for your job. Something very different is happening with the Mashiach concept. The Mashiach concept is not just a reward for what you do. Mashiach concept is the product of what you do. For an example, look at a doctor, okay? An amazing doctor who's so dedicated to his work. And he starts to speak about his passion in medicine. And he says, love what I do so much that I don't even care if I get paid. We are going to think of him as a righteous person, virtuous person, a tzaddik. But what if he says this? I love what I do so much. I don't even care if the patient gets healed. You don't think of him as virtuous anymore. You think of him as a maniac. You think of him as a criminal, maybe. You think of him as somebody who has no idea what medicine is about. Medicine is about healing. It's not just, oh, I love what I'm doing and I don't care if he gets healed. Well, guess what? This applies to our concept of Mashiach. Mashiach is the fulfillment of Hashem's dream. Mashiach is what Hashem intended when he created the world. If we don't understand that every mitzvah that we do draws down divine manifestation into this world. And every time we study Torah, we bring the divine down here. We are accomplishing Hashem's dream in having a dwelling place here. We can't serve properly. We have to have a concept of what we're doing so that we can serve properly. Take, for example, some dedicated soldiers who are fighting the king's war. They listen to the general no matter what. So the general says, okay, guys, See the guys in the red shirts? Shoot them. Okay, we're soldiers. We're dedicated. Whatever the general says, we're going to listen. So we'll have to shoot those guys in the red shirts. But we have no idea what's the program here. We don't understand what we're accomplishing. We don't know what's the agenda. How well are we going to serve? On the other hand, if the general says like this, you guys, see those guys in the red shirts? They're trying to conquer our land. They want to steal our freedom. They want to make us into slaves. They actually, they want to kill us. If we don't shoot them first, they're going to shoot us. So see the guys in the red shirts, 
shoot them. Which soldiers are going to work better? Even if the first group of soldiers is so dedicated and they listen no matter what the general tells them, they can't work with the same level of passion and energy as the soldiers who know what's going on. The soldiers who understand we have a mission here. We have a strategy. We need to save our freedom. There is a point here. They can work cohesively. They can work passionately. They throw themselves into it because they're aware of the mission. When we understand the mission, when we understand why Hashem created this world, we can serve much more passionately. We understand what it's about. We're here. We have a goal. We're trying to draw down divine manifestation and everything we do. It just gives us a life and a fire. In fact, there's a story of a man named uh, Rabbi Salo Schiff. And he went to visit Russia post-Glasnost, and he finds himself in the office of a certain Alexander Nikolaevich. Alexander Nikolaevich was someone who was a consultant for about religion for the KGB, helped capture and incarcerate many Hasidim. But of course, post-war era, post-Glasnost, now he is in the helping to solve war, uh, uh, what was the name of his organization? Something about fixing war crimes. And you know how they evolved from one office to the other. So he is in his office. He's actually trying to find records of some Hasidim who were being hunted down during the war. And he presents this Alexander Nikolaevich. One more thing, one more detail over here. Okay, so Betzal Fish had a brother, Berkashev, who the KGB was after, and they never managed to catch him. And he comes into the office of Alexander Nikolaevich, and he brings with him four huge volumes. And some of the pages in these volumes are marked. These four volumes that he brings are the book of Shluchim, Chabad emissaries that the Rebbe sent across the globe. And the pages that are marked are the children and the grandchildren of all those people that the KGB was after. And Alexander opens the book. He starts looking at the pages and suddenly he's already a very old man. And suddenly he turns to his secretary and he said, look at these people. They're strong. Look at their eyes. They're happy. If I would have known what kind of people I was up against, I never would have tried. What is it? What made these people strong? What made these people happy? These are people who didn't lose sight of the vision. These are people who lived with stamina, with courage, because they realized that there's a goal. Viktor Frankl famously wrote the book, Man's Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning is as old as the world itself. He tapped into that truth that man needs meaning because we have meaning. There's not just some haphazard world going on. There's a vision, there's a purpose, and we serve to fulfill that purpose. So here we are, chapter 36, one of my favorite <laughs> And we're going to start from, if you print out the booklet, right from the English here. If not, you can just listen in. That's fine. Chapter 36. In the previous chapter, the Alter Rebbe began to explain why the observance of the practical mitzvot is the, purpose, is the ultimate purpose of Torah and of one's spiritual service of God. This practical aspect is underscored by the conclusion of the verse, For the thing is very near to you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. And I'm going to remind us all that right at the beginning of the Tanya, the Alter Rebbe said that his book is here to explain one verse of the Torah. And this is the verse. The Torah says, Maishu Rabbeinu is telling the people, 
For this thing is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. And Alter Rebbe said, I'm here to explain this to you, how indeed it is very near to you in the long but short way. And so in examining this verse, because we have to understand how is the Torah easy for us to fulfill. It's one thing we say, just behave a certain way, but that's not what Moshe Rabbeinu said. He said, in your mouth and in your heart. That means your identity is going to align with this. How is that going to be easy? And that's what the whole Tanya is here to explain. Last chapter, the Altar chose the words la say to do it, explaining why physical, practical action takes such significance in Judaism. He explained that only mitzvot observed through action draw down the light of the Shekhinah upon one's animal soul and body rather than upon the divine soul alone, as do the mitzvot performed only in thought and speech. Yet, this does not answer one question satisfactorily. Why is the illumination of the body and animal soul so important that those practical mitzvot which accomplish this, this illumination should be considered one's primary objective? The Alter Rebbe addresses this question in this chapter, chapter 36. He explains that God's purpose in creation is that he might have a dwelling place in the lower realms, specifically in this physical world. In this world of doubled and redoubled spiritual darkness, his Ein Sof light, Ein Sof means infinite. His Ein Sof light would radiate with even more powerfully than it does in the higher spiritual realms through man's transforming the darkness into light. In man, the microcosm, the animal soul and the body are the lower realms. Therefore, the practical mitzvot, which draw down the light of the Shekhinah upon them, constitute man's ultimate purpose. Furthermore, through the practical mitzvot and through their elevating effect on the body and animal soul, the material world, it's in, in its entirety, becomes a dwelling place for God. This, however, properly belongs to the discussion of chapter 37. Okay, here we go in the words of the Alter Rebbe. In a well-known statement, our rabbis declare that the purpose for which this world was created is that the Holy One, blessed be He, desired to have an abode in the lower realms. So our sages taught us that Hashem created this world desiring to have an abode in the lowest realms. That sounds simple enough until we try to understand it. What does that mean? Here's some words we need to understand. What does desire mean? What does a dwelling place mean? What does lowest realms mean? Let's look at lowest realms in our own experience. So we live in a very physical world. So we might think that lowest realms applies to the lowest altitude on planet Earth. Now, of course, we're not going to think that way because that's very simplistic. But besides the fact that it's simplistic, physicality only exists in this world. There are four worlds, and this is the only physical world. So if we're going to say that God desired a dwelling place in the lowest realms, we can't mean physically lowest because physicality doesn't exist in any other world. Okay, so then let's think of spirituality. Let's take ourselves out of the shackles of material thinking, of physical thinking, and let's move to a spiritual level. How do we describe higher and lower in spiritual terms? 
So this is something actually that Maimonides discusses in Hilchas Yisaiti HaTera, speaking about the supernal angels. And he says, when we say that one is higher than the other, we don't mean spatially. We mean in a sense of greatness, the same way that you would say that one sage is greater, gadol, meaning bigger than his fellow. We don't mean that he's actually bigger. We mean that he has a higher level. He's on a higher level. So let's say we're going to say, you know what? We're not going to apply the terms physically to Hashem. That can't be that Hashem desires to dwell in the physically lowest space. No. Let's think about spirituality. Maybe he desires to dwell in the spiritually lowest place. But we have to understand that just as physicality does not confine Hashem, he's not limited to physical. He's also not limited to spiritual. We think we're being more open-minded when we say Hashem desires that which is spiritually lowest. But just like he created physical, he also created spiritual. So that doesn't apply. Spirituality, spiritual ideas aren't confined to physical. So if spiritual ideas are not confined to physical, just backtracking, backtracking to physical again. Hashem is not confined to, to physical because let's think of an a fortiori argument. Spirituality is not confined to physicality. For an example, ideas are spiritual. Spiritual means something that you can't take in with your five senses. A lot of times we confuse spirituality and holiness and they're not the same thing. Spirituality only means that which we can't take in with our five senses. So something spiritual would be an idea. A basic mathematical principle, simple enough, one plus one is two. We're not going to say that the idea of one plus one is two only applies in this room and doesn't apply in the next room. Only exists in the house or only exists in Los Angeles, but does not exist in New York. That doesn't make any sense. It's not confined to space. But even though it is not confined to space, there's a certain limitation of spirituality in terms of physicality. What is that limitation? It doesn't actually exist in the physical realm. Everything has a realm where it exists and a realm where it does not exist. In the world of pure ideas, emotions don't exist. In the world of emotions, in the world of sentience, Physical things, water, fire, air, earth, physical things don't exist. In the world of a horse who doesn't speak language, words don't exist. So when we say that spirituality is not confined to physicality, it's also a limitation. It doesn't exist in the realm of physicality. Okay? Now, the reason why I'm saying this is to contrast this with the way Hashem is not confined by physicality. Because when we say an idea is not limited to the physical world, we also mean to say that it doesn't actually exist in that realm. The world of, the world of logic is a realm of its own, and that's where ideas exist. The physical world has its own properties, and that's where physicality exists. So certain things only exist in certain realms. 
But what about Hashem? Hashem is not confined to physicality, but He is the most present in every which realm. There is no realm where He does not exist. Hashem is completely and fully present here. And that's going to leave us with a mind-boggling question. If Hashem is fully and completely present in every which realm, including the physical realm, then why don't we see Him? If something is physical, that means it exists in a physical realm, we can see it. If Hashem is in every rich realm, including the realm of physicality, we should be able to see him. Why can't we see him? And there is a write-up of a class given by the famous um, Hasidic scholar, Rabbi Khan, Aleph Hashem, and he challenged his students with these questions. And they tried to say, you can't see him because he's spiritual. And he's like, no, what are you saying? Hashem is not spiritual, just like he's not physical. And one answer after another, and they couldn't get it. And then finally, he lowers his voice and he says to them, do you know why you can't see Hashem? You can't see Hashem because he is hiding. Simple as that. He chose to hide himself. If he didn't hide himself, of course we would see him. He is more present than anything else we can see. In fact, this is what David HaMelech writes in Tehillim. Indeed, you are a God who hides himself. So we're looking at the terms higher and lower. And we're trying to figure out what does this mean? Our sages said, Hashem desired a dwelling place in the lowest realms. What does lowest mean? Not physically lowest, not spiritually lowest. He desired that the essence of his Ain So flight be revealed as it is, without veil or concealment, amid the lower creations. Our sages used the word abode or dwelling place to describe such revelation. Just as man's home serves as an abode for his essence, so too is this world intended to be an abode for God's essence. So here they are describing what does it mean that he wants a dwelling place. At home, you're totally yourself. Hashem wants to be totally himself in this world. The Alter Rebbe now goes on to explain the phrase, the lower realms mentioned above. He shows that this refers specifically to our physical world. The explanation in brief. The terms higher and lower realms do not denote degrees of respective importance in the sight of God or of closeness to him. In God's eyes, all the worlds from the highest to the lowest are equally insignificant. All are equally remote from him. On the other hand, he fills the lowest world just as he fills the highest. Thus, the terms higher and lower must be understood as a standard of comparison within the numerous worlds. They indicate the degree to what godliness is revealed in each individual world. The more revelation, the higher the world. The more obscurity and concealment, the lower. From this standpoint, our physical world is the very lowest. For here, godliness is most veiled and concealed. So this is what we're going to flesh out as we continue the chapter. Now, again, let's look at the statement of our sages. Our sages said, Hashem desired a dwelling place in the lowest realms. We're trying to figure out what lowest means. We figured out what dwelling place means. But what about desire? And this is something that Hasidim asked the author of the Tanya, the Alter Rebbe. And they said, 
Why did God desire? Why did he have this desire? Why did he desire to dwell in the lowest realms? And he answered them in Yiddish, if a taiva is king kasha. You can't ask a question about a desire. We have to realize that in our own human experience. If you really want something, and then somebody asks you, why do you want that? The second that you are articulating why you want what you want, you're not talking about your purest desire anymore. Desire is not in the world of rationale. It's way beyond that. It's not something given to expression of why. So Hashem's desire in creating this lowest realms created us. Why? That's out of our realm. We have no idea why. It's not something that we can even fathom. Okay. But surely, before God, in His sight, the distinction of higher and lower is not valid. One world is no higher than another, for He pervades all worlds equally. What then do our sages mean by saying that God desired an abode in the lower realms? You can't say higher and lower because you're going to say that one world is more significant and more important. There's, it's closer to him. There is no world that is closer to him. Why is there no world that is closer to him? Because he pervades all worlds equally. And this is like unbelievable idea. The highest of all the worlds is the world of emanation. In Hebrew, it's called Atzilus, Atzilut. Just as he fills that world, he fills our world, the lowest world. When we want to say spiritually something is higher or lower, that means that it has some closer relationship to that primary source. Like, for example, let's say a professor is giving a class in quantum mechanics to a group of students. His lecture is extremely profound. And most of the students' minds, their mental vessels, are not suited to the entirety of the lecture. So the most gifted student absorbs the most of the lecture. The least gifted student absorbs the least of the lecture. So in this way, this brilliant professor is closer to the most gifted of his students. Why? Because his lesson, his ideas, his thoughts are more present in the gifted student's mind than they are in the not so gifted student's mind. So again, there's a teacher, he's teaching. All the students are listening, but not all the students absorb. The one who absorbs the most is the closest or the highest to the teacher because he has the most of the teacher's mind, as it were, within him. The least of the students has less of the teacher within him because he couldn't absorb that much, so he's lower, he's more distant from the teacher. But in our case, None of the worlds have the vessels to properly contain Hashem. Even the highest spiritual world is not a vessel to contain Him. 
So in the case of a teacher, in the case of this professor of quantum mechanics, he's giving a lecture that's so deep that none of his students get a word he's saying. Then he is not present within the mind of any of his students. But in the case of Hashem, where none of the worlds are enough of a vessel to properly contain him or to contain him at all, it's not that he's not present within them, God forbid, actually just the opposite. He is fully present to the same extent in each and every one of them. So again, higher and lower cannot apply because none of them are closer to him. And this is really a mind-boggling idea because if we think of the higher spiritual world with supernal angels and how Hashem is, the world is so full of Hashem's glory. And then we translate that and realize what's going on in our world, exactly the same. He fills all the worlds equally. We can't see it. But he is completely and totally present in each and every world. So higher and lower, Mila Umata, doesn't apply. It's not Shaykh. Those are the words of the Altar of It's not Shaykh. It doesn't apply. So what does it mean? The Altar is going to explain. Ella, Bayer Ha'inyan. The explanation of the matter, however, is that God desired an abode in that realm considered lower within the ranks of the worlds. As follows. Before the world, any world, was created, there was only He alone, one and unique, filling all the space in which He created the world. Anything that could be conceived of as a space or possibility for creation was filled with the Ainsof light. Okay, so let's imagine what was before the world was created. All there was, was Hashem. And he filled every which space. Okay, so that's pre-creation. Only Hashem filling all space. Of course, there was no space. You're going to say he's filled all space. There was no space. He created space. When we say space, we're talking about a Kabbalistic level called Mekayim Ha'ilam the place of the world. The Midrash says, Hu He is the place of the world. His world is not his place. Meaning, he doesn't come to be in the world. The world comes to be within him. But that terminology, the place of the world, is actually the level at which God already contracted himself as if vacated a place so that he can give possibility for creation. He never vacates any place. We're talking about perceptibly. Okay, so pre-creation, all there is is God, and he fills every which space. Guess what? Are you ready? V'gam atakein hu lefanav yisbarech. In his view, indeed, it is still the same now. Creation wrought no change in his unity. He is one alone now, just as he was Prior to creation. Before creation, there was only God and he filled every which face. Guess what? Nothing changed. The Navi Malachi says, the Prophet Malachi says, Ani Hashem I Hashem have not changed. 
Simply speaking, it means that human beings go through all kinds of changes. Sometimes they are talking and sometimes they're quiet. Sometimes they're happy. Sometimes they're sad. Hashem doesn't experience any of those changes. Hashem never changes. Also, this means that Hashem hasn't changed. Creation wrought no change in him whatsoever. Ani Hashem Shanisi. I Hashem have not changed. When a father produces a child, when a one produces a second, that one is changed forever. The person who becomes a parent is changed forever. But when Hashem created the world, that brought about no change in him whatsoever. So you're going to say, okay, what are you talking about? You're going to say, Hashem was one alone. He filled all space. And now too, there's nothing else that exists besides for Hashem. You have to be kidding. There's a world with billions and trillions of creatures. There's planets, there's galaxies, endless space. How could you say that nothing exists besides for Hashem? Sounds crazy. Well, one thing, easy way out of this would be to say, it's all an optical illusion. It doesn't really exist. But of course, we cannot say that. We cannot say that because the Torah clearly says, In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. There is a story of the Rebbe, at a Fabrengen, he was explaining a Rashi. And in the middle of the Fabrengen, he points to a little boy, who is now famously known as Rabbi Yassi Jacobson, and says, How do you know that there's a world? A little boy in the room, I think he was like five or six years old. And the little boy feels the eyes on him, but he doesn't say a thing. And then the Rebbe answers for him. And he says, he will answer because it says in the Torah, because it says in the Torah, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. So definitely, it's not an optical illusion. The world has been created. So how could we say that just as Hashem was one alone before creation and he filled all space, so too is he one alone after creation, filling all space, and creation wrought no change in him whatsoever. Okay, we all agree that nothing has any value or significance compared to Hashem. Right? Now, if you take something that has little or no value, and you subsume it within something of tremendous value, that first thing completely loses its existence. The Navi Yeshaya says, The entire earth is filled with his glory. The Zohar says, There is no space devoid of him. So we're coming to terms with this idea that even though we can't see it with our fleshly eyes, God fills all space. There is no space devoid of him. Now, let's take the analogy that the Arizal gives of a tiny drop of water. Now you take this tiny drop of water and you drop it into the ocean. Does that drop of water have an identity now? It doesn't have an identity. It loses its identity. Now it's no longer a drop of water in the ocean. There's just the vast ocean or a flame, small flame of a candle that has become absorbed into a large bonfire. Do you now say that there is a small flame within the large 
bonfire, you don't say that. Because that flame has lost its significance. That flame has become subsumed within the larger whole. Now, of course, what's great about this analogy is that it concretizes the idea for us to bring it close to home because when things are too abstract, it's hard for us to get it. So we can see a drop of water, we understand the vast ocean, and we see that the drop of water loses its identity within the vast ocean, except that's not truly how it is when we're talking about Hashem. Because what is the ocean? The ocean, after all, as hard as it is to imagine, is made up of a bunch of drops of water. More than we could even imagine. But even if you put one drop of water into the ocean, the ocean has become one drop vaster. But we're talking about something completely insignificant, getting absorbed within something of prime significance. Is it there? It's there. But does it exist? Does it have an existence? It doesn't have an existence. So yes, the world has been created. But when we realize that the worlds are utterly nullified to Hashem, that they have no value of their own, and that everything is subsumed within Him, we can come to understand that just as Hashem was one and alone before creation and He filled all space, right now too, the world has been created, but Hashem is one alone just as he was post-creation. Now, this is actually an idea to sit with. It's like kind of a meditation because it's so contrary to what our senses are telling us. But if we really sit with this idea that Hashem fills every which space and nothing has value or significance relative to him, we come to understand there's only one existence, and that's Hashem. So what has been the change? What happened at creation? And this is what the Altar Rebbe is going to explain to us now. The change applies only to the recipients of his vivifying force and his light. Before creation, there was none to receive the divine life force and light. Creation brought into being these recipients. Who receive this life and light by way of numerous garments which veil and conceal God's light. For without such garments, they could not bear its intensity and would cease to exist. So, here's something amazing, a fascinating idea. This is how Rabbi Steinsalz explains it. He says like this, The distance from creator to creation is not the same as the distance from creation to creator. What does that mean? He compares it to a one-way mirror. On one side, you see yourself. On the other side, there is no blockage. It's transparent. You see right through. Hashem, as it were, put up veils and concealments so that we could think we exist, so that we could have an independent existence. If we were to be aware of the truth, as it says in the Torah, ain't od melvado, there is nothing else besides for him, we couldn't possibly maintain existence. If any existing being were to become cognizant of the absolute truth that there really is nothing else besides Hashem, they couldn't maintain existence anymore. 
The Talmud tells us that before, creation, before creating man, God, as it were, consulted with a group of angels whether or not to create man. And this group of angels said, What is man that you should make mention of him? Why would you create man? And so the Talmud then goes on to say, You know what God did? He extended his little finger among them and he burned them. What does that mean? God doesn't have a finger. He extended his little finger among a group of angels. He burned them. Kabbalah explains that he revealed himself to them more than they had the capacity to handle. And so they nullified out of existence. If created beings were to be aware of the absolute truth that there's nothing else besides Hashem, they couldn't be a being. They couldn't be in existence. They couldn't maintain existence. So therefore, Hashem masks himself. From world to world, these masks vary. So creation from Hashem's part didn't make any change at all. The masks are only one way, completely transparent on his side. From created being side, this is the most meaningful change. This is the genesis. This is where creation began. Now, we would think that in our lowest world, this is where all the veils exist. But in the highest worlds, in the worlds of the supernal angels, then there are no veils and they can perceive the absolute divine reality. And the Altar is going to correct that mistake for us. And he brings proof from the Torah. So it is written, for no man can see me and live. So Maishu Rabbeinu requests of Hashem, Moses asks of God. He says, Show me your glory. And God answers him, you cannot see my glory. For man shall not see me and live. So, in a very basic level, he's saying, a person can't see me and live after that. If you see me, you will not live. But in the Medrash, our rabbis interpret the verse to mean also as follows. For man cannot see me, nor the chayot. Those supernal beings also cannot see me. If any created being, no matter how spiritual, no matter how lofty, were to perceive the absolute divine truth, they would not be able to maintain existence. This condition of concealment applies in every which world. In fact, the word for world in Hebrew is olam. Olam means concealment. If it's a world, by, by perforce, it has to have concealment. A world by de facto must have concealment. So yes, we're thinking of our world and we're thinking, yeah, there's so much concealment in our world. But in the higher worlds, there's no concealment. No, every world has concealment. And as our rabbis of blessed memory interpret the word vachai and live in this verse as referring to angels, thus, even angels called chayot, Holy Chayot cannot see godliness except by way of garments which conceal him, thereby enabling them to receive his light. The degree of concealment varies, however, from world to world and from level to level. 
Here, the distinction between higher and lower realms becomes valid as the Alter Rebbe will continue. So let me sum up what we said until now. We are examining the purpose of creation. The Alter Rebbe began by quoting the statement of our sages that Hashem desired to have a dwelling place in the lowest realms. But that confused us once we tried to really understand it. You can't call something higher or lower to Hashem. That would mean that something is more closer to him, that something is more of a vessel to contain him. But nothing is a vessel to contain him. And even though nothing, no being, no world is enough of a vessel to contain the infinite, he is totally and fully present in every which space. In fact, just as Hashem was one alone, filling all space before creation, so too now is he one alone, filling all space after creation. Did creation bring a change? Not to Hashem. But to those recipients of his light, the created beings, of course there's been a change because we receive his life force now through masks and veils. Here is where the terminology is becoming significant. Lower and higher is going to apply to the world as they are within themselves. A higher world is going to have less concealment. A lower world, and our world is the lowest of them all, is going to have the greatest concealment. So that's a summary of what we got up into until now. Next class, we're going to visit the concept of Seder Hishtalshlus, the chain-like order of the descent of the worlds. And we're going to examine what is important here. Which world is the most important? There's worlds that are very spiritual. Ours is the lowest, coarsest, darkest of all the worlds. Where is the most significant place in all of creation? I want to thank Rabbi Tzvi Freeman from Chabad.org for some of the amazing write-ups and stories that greatly enhanced our class today.